0: Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello
1: podcast listeners, I'm Connor, and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. Today we're featuring another debate from our friends at Intelligence Squared Germany. And in partnership with the European Council on
0: Foreign Relations, they staged a debate on the motion, Joe Biden won't fix the transatlantic relationship. It's a fascinating and very timely discussion as Biden announced a number of members of his cabinet this
1: week, and it featured Matt Carniching, chief Europe editor at Politico, going up against suited David Wilp, deputy director of the German Marshall Fund. And the debate was chaired by Jana Püllerin,
0: senior policy fellow and head of the Berlin office at the European Council on Foreign Relations. We hope you enjoy it. And now let's go to the episode.
1: Hello and welcome. My name is Jana Püllerin and I'm the head of ECFR's Berlin office. Um, it's my great pleasure to welcome you today to um, a first. This is our first ECFR and Intelligence Squared online event. We've done a couple of events together, but this is our first in the virtual world. So I'm very happy to introduce, first of all, the motion uh, of today's debate. So the motion is Joe Biden won't fix the transatlantic relationship. And looking at recent political op-ads or La Grande Continent interviews or today's keynote speeches, I think this can be considered a very timely topic. I want to introduce my first speaker. And my first speaker is the fabulous Matt Karnichnik, who speaks for The Motion. Matt is Politico's chief Europe correspondent, and he's based in Berlin. And I think that many here consider him kind of the sharpest tongue in town. So he joined Politico in 2015 from Wall Street Journal, where he spent 15 years And he is an interesting mix. He's the son of an Austrian father and an American mother and grew up in Arizona. So he's an Austrian Arizonian. He was named a Pulitzer finalist for national reporting in 2009 and led a team that was named named a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in international reporting in 2011. And Matt, you have the floor for exactly six minutes. And if you uh, go over time, I'll brutally interrupt you. Shoot.
2: Thank you, Jana. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in today. It's quite an interesting topic, a very timely topic. President Trump was right, almost right. Europe really is the enemy. Not America's enemy, as Trump often said, but its own enemy, its own worst enemy, you might say. That's why I support this motion, because Joe Biden can't fix the transatlantic relationship only the Europeans can. The trouble is, they refuse to. Over the past several years, Trump's open hostility towards Europe has allowed the Europeans to hide behind his own antics and their own indecision about what to do on issues like defense, trade, and so on. Really, the foundational aspects of the transatlantic relationship. Trump, with his attacks, basically created a diversion where Europe didn't really have to decide on issues that have been percolating in the background for quite some time. But to consider the current situation, you don't need to look at at ancient history. You just need to look at the past couple of weeks. And earlier this month, and Jana already mentioned it, Annegret Kram karrenbauer whose name I will henceforth uh, refer to as Akaka, in order to avoid that tongue twister, she published an op-ed in my own publication, Politico, in which she offered what I would consider something of a reality check to both the Germans and the Europeans concerning the transatlantic relationship. And her message was that even if it wanted to at this stage, Europe could not sever its reliance on the United States for its security. And I quote, illusions of European strategic autonomy must come to an end. Europeans will not be able to replace America's role as a security provider. It didn't take long for Emmanuel Macron to responds to this. And as I'm sure everybody knows, he has formed his own sort of philosophy around the transatlantic cooperation, which he has dubbed strategic autonomy for Europe, which many people obviously disagree with. And he responded by saying in his typically concise manner in a 12,000-word interview that he profoundly disagrees with what Kahnbauer AKK had uh, written in Politico and said in a previous speech and called it a historic misinterpretation. Earlier today then, Ka gave another speech doubling down on what she had said and at the same time claiming that she and Macron were in fact in agreement with one another, that there wasn't really any light between them as everybody was saying. So if you're confused about this, uh, you're not the only ones. The point is, is that there is complete disagreement in Europe about what to do on the transatlantic front. And France and Germany, I remind you, are the two countries who are supposed to be closest, the so-called motor of Europe. And if they, have, if they, can't, dis, if they can't agree on these issues, it's hard to see how they're going to pull the rest of the continent behind them and come to some form of new paradigm with the Biden administration or any other administration. I would also argue that if everyone in Europe agrees, as Akaka and Macron are saying, that more needs to be done on defense in particular, then why not just do it? There's a recent comment from the former Italian prime minister Enrico Letta that made me chuckle. We can't allow Europe to be depending on some thousand voters in Nevada, Arizona, or Pennsylvania, he said. And given that I was born in Arizona, I I felt uh, specifically singled out by that. But I agree with him. The problem is is that Europe itself refuses to do anything about it. Over the summer, as you know, the European Union passed its latest seven-year budget. Originally, for defense initiatives, there was a proposal from the European Commission to spend just over 17 billion on the European Defense Fund and some other initiatives for the next seven years. And what they approved was seven billion. So here you can see just the, the, the gulf between the rhetoric and the reality, and which is why I think it is so difficult to understand why anyone could think that it will depend on Joe Biden to figure out what Europe wants to do on the transatlantic front. So again, if you're asking what Biden can do, as we have with this motion, the answer is nothing. Another recent example of this dissonance in the, the European discussion is what's going on right now between Brussels and Poland and Hungary. And while this is not a transatlantic issue per se, I think it's instructive to see that if Europe can't even agree on fundamental questions such as what is the rule of law, then how is it going to come to any form of unity on the question of the essence of the transatlantic relationship going forward? I think I need to
1: interrupt you here because you know, six minutes are over and we are very strict.
2: You're very strict. But
1: you can come, okay. you can we'll come, come back, back to, to, to other
2: points afterwards.
1: Other points uh, in the question section. But now uh, I want Suda to put uh, on her boxing gloves and step into the ring. Suda david Wolf is the deputy director of the Berlin Office of the German Marshall Fund, um, where she has been for, I think now, almost a decade. She was previously director at international programs at the US Association of Former Members of Congress in Washington, and she has studied at Johns Hopkins and Columbia and she's a dear colleague. And Suda, the floor is now yours for another six minutes and counting.
3: Thank you, Jana. Thank you, Intelligence Squared and ECFR um, for giving me the opportunity to be the cheerleader for the transatlantic relationship. I'm in good company with uh, German Defense Minister Akaka. It's a thankless job these days because, as Matt mentioned, uh, the transatlantic relationship is not perfect. And um, there are full of uh, it's full of conflicts even within Europe. But nonetheless, I do think that Joe Biden can fix the transatlantic relationship from its current broken state. And so I am against the motion. I believe that Joe Biden will fix the transatlantic relationship for three reasons. One, because of who he is. Two, because the timing is right to fix the transatlantic relationship. And three, because of just out of pure necessity, Joe Biden needs the transatlantic relationship in order to reach his immediate goals. So point one. Why? Well, Joe Biden has personal convictions and a strong background in U.S. foreign policy. He's a traditionalist and he believes the transatlantic relationship is an anchor for the rules-based international order, a system largely created and maintained by the United States that served our interests quite well over the past decades. It's not perfect, it needs reform, but it has definitely given Europe and the United States relative stability and prosperity. Joe Biden also values our alliance system. He sees uh, the advantages of it and he has said that he is going to reach out to European leaders to quickly regain their trust. And assure them that America is back and is a dependable partner and will work within the multilateral framework. He's already vowed to rejoin the Paris Climate Accord. And he's also said he's going to renew membership in the WHO, all music to the ears of Europeans. And he definitely thinks the transatlantic relationship is a force multiplier. Joe Biden also has a strong interest in Europe, even before he became vice president. He was either chair or ranking member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee since 1997. He saw Europe up close. He saw Europe at its best when it came to European integration. And he also saw Europe at its worst and still takes a special interest in the Balkans today. Second point, Joe Biden will fix the transatlantic relationship because he has momentum behind him. Why, you may ask? Well, the last four years have seen transatlanticists basically staring into the abyss. For the first time, we had a U.S. president call the European Union a foe, and uh, for the first time, a U.S. president looked to pull the rug out of under NATO. I think there is definitely a desire on both sides of the Atlantic to kiss and make up and to mend fences, regardless of intellectual debates about European um, sovereignty or strategic autonomy. Merkel acknowledges much last week during her press conference. She said that Germany needs to step up and take greater responsibility. And Matt will probably say, you know, Suda, we've heard that several times. And he is right. But she also added that, you know, she can understand why the United States expects it and that Germany is working on it because she realizes, along with other European leaders, leaders, that talk is cheap and it's time to deliver. And Europe must need to must must share the security burden with the United States. And in fact, Germany has actually increased uh, defense spending by 40%. Back in Washington, Joe Biden also has bipartisan support. Democrats and Republicans will continue to exert pressure on Europe when it comes to relations with Russia and China. But I think that most Democrats and Republicans would agree, uh, hard to believe that there is something to agree on, but they think that the transatlantic relationship has been through the ringer over the past four years. And last year, they passed the NATO Support Act in the House of Representatives just to show solidarity with Europe. Uh, popular opinion is also on Joe Biden's side. According to the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, 62% of Americans would like to work with other countries in order to solve global um, issues. And according to transatlantic trends, a majority of Democrats and Republicans want the United States to remain involved in European security. And just last week, trend I don't know if you guys saw this last week, said that 80% of Germans think that Joe Biden will revive the transatlantic relationship. My last point, Joe Biden will fix the transatlantic relationship because it's in his interest. A strong transatlantic relationship will help him um, tackle his immediate goals. One, the economic recovery. He needs a transatlantic relationship to kickstart the economy. Europe and the United States together make up nearly half of global GDP and also um, in terms of containing the coronavirus. Joe Biden needs um, strong transatlantic cooperation once we start opening up borders and we can take the role model of COVID cooperation between pharma and biotech as an example. And there will be other frontiers for scientific cooperation, whether it's artificial intelligence or climate change. And I, for one, would rather have um, standards being set in the transatlantic space rather than elsewhere. Finally, Joe Biden has also called for a summit of democracies where he'd like to bring a network of democracies together in order to strengthen the democratic system, to strengthen our way of life. And he'll definitely need European participation for that. And he also needs to also have Europe stand with him against external revisionist forces that are looking to attack democracy. Um, before I have to
1: interrupt you here. Your six minutes are over. we okay. are out of time. <laughs> oh, I didn't get the math points. Well, we'll get to that later then. <laughs> okay. So, But uh, to warm you up and our audience up, um, my first question to both of you, first to Matt and then to Suda. The question is, in Germany, uh, we have an upcoming election too next year. It's the end of an era. Kind of uh, Merkel, if all things go according to plan, will really step down. And do you think that this will have any effect on the transatlantic relationship? Matt, first over to you.
2: I think it'll have huge effect on the transatlantic relationship. I just don't think that we understand what an effect it will have Right now, I don't think even Emmanuel Macron apparently understands what effects that will have. I thought it was interesting in his comments this week that he said, well, I don't agree with AKK on the strategic autonomy question, but I happen to know that Merkel agrees with me. Whether or not that's true is a separate question, but I thought his reference to Merkel was quite interesting, because she's going to be gone in less than a year, and there are serious questions, I I think, about the influence that she will continue to have. It might be more likely if Ahmed Lashet replaces her, which is a big question mark, that you would see some continuity on a lot of these questions. If Friedrich Merz becomes the head of the CDU and the next chancellor, or if you were to have a... SPD Chancellor uh, under Olaf Scholz, um, you know, you would be dealing with a completely different set of circumstances. So I, I think nobody, nobody really knows.
3: Suda, yeah, I mean, I think there it will definitely play a role. We there's precedent. Um, somehow America pops up into election campaigning uh, in Germany. We saw that with uh, Schroeder's re-election campaign. Um, you know, on the eve of the Iraq war. And it will certainly come up. But the thing is, all the chancellor candidates that Matt ticked off are mainstream politicians and believe in a strong transatlantic relationship. So once there is a chancellor, and, and even if it's somebody from the Green Party, I think that um, they will all come around um, and look to a traditional role between Europe and the United States. Even Thank though tradition see- is not, I mean, we're not going to go back to the way it once was, but they'll look to have a strong relationship with the United States.
1: Thank you. So after this first warm-up round, I think I present you the kind of result of our poll. Um, This is not the final one. This is kind of what we got uh, before you even started talking. So we had the motion, Joe Biden won't fix the transatlantic relationship. We had 35% of our participants agreeing with the motion, but 51% of our participants disagreeing with the motion and 14% who say that they don't know. Just that you know kind of what you're up to and that you kind of that you need to to change this if you want to win this debate. So let's go uh, right back to the debate here. Uh, And this time I start with Suda. So there was one question in the chat. uh, Winston David actually Winston David Kippen actually mentioned the fact that Obama actually chastised Europe for underspending and free riding and kind of the Europeans did not come along. Um, That time they were unmoved. So I would interpret that speaks kind of against the the fact that kind of this time uh, the Europeans will kind of hear the bells ringing and come come around. What, What do you argue against this? So, I mean, I think, but I, hope,
3: I may, yes, I hope I made that clear in my talking points in the sense that I think that the Europeans realize that you know, we're at the end of the line. This is the last window of opportunity to fix the transatlantic relationship. You know, it hit rock bottom with President Trump, and now's the time to improve it. So if they don't step up and, um, you know, honor the 2% commitment, if they don't step up and um, cooperate with when it comes to burden sharing and intelligence sharing, then it will be very difficult to convince Um, politicians and convince their voters back home why we are spending what 70% of NATO's budget. And, you know, so I think that it is, I think that the Europeans now realize that it's not just all nostalgia and they also need to play a role. And I think they also realize that there's always going to be asymmetry when it comes to the security relationship, but that's okay. I think, um, Akaka says it herself. We need to increase or bolster European capabilities to be a strong partner for the United States.
1: So there are a lot of questions coming in now. We have one um, for Matt. Matt, there is Stefan Naumann who says that he completely agrees with your analysis of a lack of strategic understanding between Germany and France, but he wonders if this disagreement could not actually be a reason for the European side to invite the United States back to the table with open arms. So what do you say, Matt? Matt?
2: Well, I think we'd have to see some consensus, first of all, on the European side about what to do beyond inviting the United States back to the table. The United States has been at the table. The United States accounts for 75 percent of NATO defense spending. It's not the United States that's at the table. It's the Europeans who are not at the table. And this is the point of what I'm saying, is that it doesn't really depend on the United States. I don't know what more the United States could do, to be honest, than it is already doing in Europe. And if you look at the allegiance that many countries in NATO have to the United States, particularly in the east, the Baltics, for example, the Poles, for example, the Czechs and so on, the Slovenes, uh, they are much more comfortable with the United States in their camp than they are with Germany and France in their camp. And you only have to look at the video of Emmanuel Macron's recent visit to the Baltics to understand what I mean. So the the, the issue is really an inter. European problem, particularly between France and Germany on these issues. And unfortunately, it is becoming a problem between the United States and and France and uh, Germany as well, because despite what Suda said, yes, Germany is spending more, but it is spending nowhere near what it pledged to spend. And as Winston pointed out previously, yes, Obama raised this, but it wasn't only Obama. You can go all the way back to John Kennedy, if you want to, to find examples of U.S. presidents complaining about europe being uh, free riders and i think that we're in a situation right now with the pandemic with all of the pressures that biden is going to be facing in the united states all of the economic pressures he's inheriting a complete train wreck and for the european elites to think that he is going to make europe a priority in his first months or even year in office i think is just a delusion nobody in the united states is talking about these issues
1: Can I get, can I give that back to Suda immediately? Because I want Suda to comment on this. So So Biden is completely concentrated on the internal stuff. In in
3: terms of the debate and a rebuttal, I guess the one point I didn't get to when um, I spoke was, I think Matt's whole argument is precisely why the United States needs to play a role in Europe. You know, the, yes, Europeans disagree with each other and there's constant squabbling and that's the way it is. And it'll probably be that way. But that's why the United States needs to come in and play referee in order for there to be a strong Europe. And I think, in the past, you know, the Europeans had the idea that actually the White House was trying to divide Europe. And, you know, I think that there is, although Obama complained about Europeans being free riders, I think he wanted Europe to do more and take on a stronger role because a strong Europe is in the interest of the United States. Because of what Matt says, because we don't have the time to play the role that we did in the post-war era, Europe needs to take on more responsibility in concert with the United States. And, you know, Joe Biden has a really experienced team. I think even though he may not have a ton of time to make visits all over Europe, although I do think he is going to make a G7 meeting a priority at the beginning of the next year simply because of economic recovery and for containing the pandemic, he's got a team that knows Europe and then can pick up. Where they once left off, you know, after the election in 2016.
1: Okay, Suda, I, st- I stay here with you. Raphael Mitaïs from the French Embassy asks, Suda, how would you qualify fixed? transatlantic relations what would that imply for the eu
3: right so what what does that mean if i can take the liberty and say a fix from four years ago i mean that's the starting point that i used because as i mentioned i think we haven't really had an example of a president so overtly attack the united uh, attack europe and i think that that was definitely a shock for people here in Europe. And that's why I do think that it was a wake-up call and things might be different. My hope is that they will uh, step up and pay more and try to have a concerted effort to reach the 2% goal.
1: Okay. So I um, give another question. That's actually a question to both of you, but I start with Matt. Matt, should Biden, with Congress, lift sanctions on Nord Stream 2 and allow the completion of the project?
2: No, it shouldn't lift sanctions, and it won't lift the sanctions because it's the right thing to do. It has strong support from key allies in NATO, and this is a a perfect example of where Europe remains divided and why the motion stands. Biden is not going to be able to fix this. The Russians poisoned Navalny, who had to save himself by coming to Berlin— the Germans looked at it for a couple of weeks and then decided, well, actually, we're not going to do anything about this in terms of Nord Stream. You know, Nord Stream is a completely different project. There are all kinds of important companies involved there. We'll just let some grass grow on this and then we'll we'll move on. And there's a long history of that. And, you know, you see this across all kinds of fronts, including on China, which we haven't mentioned. This is another big issue. This is going to be the main foreign policy objective of the Biden administration is to develop a coherent strategy on China and they agree with the Trump administration, I think broadly, that China represents a serious threat to the United States, which is why they're going to be looking to the Europeans to deal with, with Russia mainly and why they're not going to be rushing to re-engage uh, with Europe. It's time for Europe to look after itself. And I think this is going to be the, the hard reality that uh, the Europeans are going to have to face in the coming years.
1: Suda, is Biden going to let us off the hook when it comes to Nord Stream 2? No, I agree with Matt. I think that,
3: you know, Europeans have to take a realistic attitude towards the bipartisanship in, in the United States when it comes to China and Russia they there will be sanctions and you know europe has to make trade-offs right i mean these are things that are going to be uncomfortable issues on the agenda but they'll get through them and um i think that like akaka said i keep channeling akaka you know the transatlantic relationship should trump you know short-term economic interests because for the long term for the long haul we want to be uh, working together with like-minded democracies across the Atlantic. So I do think that also the German public has also come around after Navalny, after Belarus, after also um, the coronavirus in China, that people don't necessarily see Russia and China in the same light as they do the United States, which might have been the case in in the recent past.
1: I have two questions on trade here from Linzelle and Martin Kaczerski, And one is kind of that on the trade front, the Germans um, have all, AKK again, and we keep talking about AKK has um, kind of has come up with the idea to have a new, kind of a new trade agreement, uh, kind of a new version of, of, of TTIP. And the question is, is there a similar debate in the United States? So, would there be um, can any appetite to, to make that work to to Suda?
3: I'm sorry. To what? Make what work? To so
1: any appetite in the in the uh, kind of on the other side of the Atlantic to for, for new trade agreements yeah. with the so, Europeans. You know, I
3: think the trade agreement is uh, it's not a like. Gr- Free trade is not a fashionable statement right now for a politician in Washington. I probably think that's the same case here. But, you know, I think that, for example, there could be, there's low hanging fruit. The tariffs that have gone up most recently, those can be reversed in order to, you know, restart um, global trade flows between Europe and the United States. Uh, you know maybe there'll be a, an attempt to reinvigorate T-TIP, but I think that that's not going to be a priority at the beginning. As I mentioned, you know it's important that the, Matt also said it, the United States is facing you know a triple whammy triple whammy when it comes to crises, racial justice, um, economic crisis, and this health pandemic. So Biden's going to have his hands full, but yeah, he's going to look to Europe to um, restart economic recovery, but maybe not as ambi- not so ambitious at the beginning.
1: Okay. Um, Matt, uh, are you more positive about this? And also, uh, Marcin um, asked a question about the uh, reform of the WTO, uh, which has been kind of blocked as an institution uh, for, for a very long time now. So any chance we get that going?
2: Yes, I think that the WTO blockade will be lifted because Biden is a multilateralist, but that doesn't mean that he's going to open the door to another TTIP-type agreement. I think that he personally would want that, but he has to deal with the reality in his own party. And the Democrats were completely blindsided by the trade issue in the 2016 election when Trump basically turned the Republicans against free trade for the first time. They've traditionally been the the biggest free traders in in the United States. And it's an issue that resonated in those Midwestern states that proved crucial for his victory in 2016. It has traditionally been something that the Democrats, as the American Labor Party effectively, have uh, championed until they themselves became free traders. I I think that that, unfortunately that train has, has left the station. And it's not just the Americans' fault. It's also the Europeans' fault, if you remember back to the end of the, of the Obama administration, where here again, you could have gotten this thing through. And then you had the entire upheaval in Germany about the chlorine chicken and, you know, Food Watch getting into the whole thing. And all of a sudden, you know, it was dead. And, and here we are four years later, and you have Akaka and other people saying, well, this would be a good idea to do. Yeah, it would be something good, but it's, it's politically, it's, it's not realistic at the moment.
1: Okay, I um, stay with you, Matt, because we have a question from Vladimir Handel, which I tweak a little bit because he is coming up with the China issue. And kind of China is often portrayed as kind of the the glue between us, kind of together we fight against China. So why why is that not an option for a a renewed transatlantic relationship?
2: Well, because Europe doesn't have a coherent position on China, uh, just like many, many other issues. You you have some countries in Europe that have signed up to the U.S. or the Trump administration initiative to basically block uh, Huawei from installing 5G into their systems. And then you have other countries, including Germany, it appears, that are playing a more kind of, you know, wait and see game. So it, it's, it's, it's not really clear how, how that's Going to work. I I think for a country like Germany, which has a very extensive trade relationship with China, the US remains, despite the pressures that uh, Sudo referred to in the trade relationship, the United States is still the single largest export market for Germany. Uh, China is also a huge export market for Germany, and they do not want to endanger that and Just as you 've seen with the Russian relationship, I would argue you're going to see a similar approach to China, which is you know to take a you know very differentiated approach as as the Germans say, so they are not going to want to follow the hard example of the United States where the u s is saying that they're willing to basically put their economic interests in China at risk because of the importance of uh, stopping China influence elsewhere. And Germany and Europe are nowhere near that stage.
1: Thank you, Suda. Why can China be a glue? And how could a common China strategy look like, given that decoupling is not an option for us Europeans? Well,
3: actually, I don't know if decoupling is really um, the road that Joe Biden and Congress wants to take. I was involved in a call uh, with members of Congress and German Bundestag members and American members of Congress actually have a very nuanced opinion of China. They don't think that decoupling is the um, you know, that that's that that's the right solution. And I think Joe Biden, you know, he wants Europe to play on his team and he's going to want to have Europe have a common view when it comes to China. There will be red lines that he's going to set, whether it be 5G or also, you know, the sort of production of um, sensitive industries on the home front rather than outsourcing things to China. So I think Europe needs to make a decision. I mean, and I agree with Matt here, you know, it's a short-term economic game versus losses when it comes to intellectual property and um, rule of law. So these are things that Europeans need to think about if, while they uh, make their de- decisions. And they have to get out of the framework of just seeing things through an economic lens, but also look at things geostrategically.
1: So Suda, a question for you from Elin Schiffer from Stockholm. Do you see a Biden administration working mainly with the EU or through NATO?
3: I mean, I think both. I think what's the saying? You know, I think Joe Biden hopefully can chew gum and walk at the same time and have good relations with both institutions. Naturally, you know, NATO, I think, is sort of the a priori um, multilateral institution. It has tradition. It has this success, even though it needs to be reformed uh, or, you know, retrofitted for the the 21st century. But I think that, you know, even if you look at Brexit as an example, you know, I think Joe Biden will want to have a special relationship with the UK, but not at the expense of the EU.
1: Question for actually both of you, but I'll start with Matt, a nice one from my colleague Raphael Loss. How should Europeans prepare for the next Trumpian president in the White House?
2: Well, they should prepare by either deciding to pursue strategic autonomy and really doing it which many people think is unrealistic or they should try to rejuvenate the relationship with the United States because this issue that Trump has brought up over the past several years of Europe not pulling its own weight is not going to go away he was particularly critical of Germany and I and of NATO in general and I think that as you know more and more americans wake up to the realities of the imbalance in this relationship that is going to remain a political issue that the republicans will use to uh, really differentiate their own policies on international affairs from the democrats and if you think back to the example of trade where you know there there wasn't really a a lot of disagreement in the United States on trade. And then out of nowhere, this issue of free trade and ending free trade and renegotiating all of these deals came up during the Trump administration. And I would fear that that same kind of thing is going to happen with security and with the alliances that the United States has around the world.
1: Thank you Suda should we prepare for another Trump in the White House or was this an aberration and will never hit us again
3: So you know I don't I don't think that President Trump is unique to American history we have examples of trumpian figures like you know George Wallace but they just never made it to the White House uh, Trump made it to the White House and he lost the election but he did better than expected so trumpism is going to be a mantra for the Republican Party and I think actually Matt I read Matt's article I think that actually. Actually, Germans and Europeans should make sure that they keep ties warm with the Republican Party, however hard it may be for them. It's important that they also bring Republicans along when it comes to looking for ways to cooperate and to find common ground and not just depend on Democrats always winning the White House.
1: Suda, I have a question because kind of strategic autonomy seems to be the hot topic uh, nowadays, and very uh, heated debate between President Macron and AKK again. So, just on the on the sheer topic, strategic autonomy, do you think that the Americans should embrace this or uh, kind of, should, yeah, you know, I, I think welcome
3: the term. Sure, we're getting caught up here with verbiage and sort of alphabet soup. I think if uh, you know, I would hope that Washington thinks. Strategic autonomy is not mutually exclusive with the transatlantic relationship. It means that Europe wants to be strong, wants to be able to make security decisions on its own when it's in their common interest, but also obviously in concert with the United States. I mean, that that's what's important. That's the bottom line.
1: Matt, anything to add on strategic autonomy? Any thoughts?
3: Well, I think that a
2: lot of people in the United States would welcome strategic autonomy. It just doesn't appear that there's a real will in Europe to pursue it. And I think that longer term, that is the the real danger to the Europeans because there's this expectation, as Suda has uh, just articulated this evening, that the United States somehow needs Europe. Now, that is a question that I think a lot of Americans would look at and say, well, why, why do we need uh, Europe? Because all of these East Coast elites are telling us that we need Europe. We've got good trading relationships with plenty of countries and regions around the world in which we do not have a major military presence. And I expect that this is going to be something that the Republicans in particular are going to keep hammering at in the coming years if the Europeans don't step up and do more to provide for their own security.
1: I have two questions on Brexit. One is kind of on yeah Boris Johnson's position uh, now and also the, the British position outside the EU and kind of um, the special relationship between the UK and the US. Do you see that developing?
3: I mean, as I mentioned before, I think that because of nostalgic reasons, you know, the United States will still have obviously call the UK as a special partner. And, you know, the UK is a member of Five Eyes. and uh, But I, I also do think that Washington realize that Germany is also the de facto leader of Europe, and um, in order to have a strong transatlantic relationship, it's important that the European Union works and that Biden also has, uh, or the Biden administration also has, close and strong ties with European capitals outside of just London.
1: Matt, anything to add or should we move on?
3: Well I would I I disagree slightly I think that the UK
2: relationship will remain absolutely central to the United States it has a long tradition I don't think that it's just nostalgia we're culturally much closer and I expect that that will continue also because the military cooperation is so close. And this is, again, the, the big problem with Germany is that it, it just hasn't stepped up in this arena in the way that the United States has expected over the years. And it remains very controversial here. If you look at the polls in Germany, now these are pre-Trump, but even you know post-election, uh, the most recent one that I saw showed that only 32 percent of Germans have a favorable opinion of the United States. States. Now, that was after the election. So, you know, I, I, I think that this is just a reality that we all have to kind of deal with and ask ourselves well, you know, do the Europeans, do the average Germans or French or whoever they are really want the United States to remain engaged in, in, in Europe? And, and I'm, not, I'm not convinced that they do.
1: So you're more hopeful, uh, kind of, about the strategic relationship between the UK and the US than about kind of the transatlantic relationship between continental Europe and the United States. Just that I yes, think because it's right much way. more it's yeah? much
2: more intuitive. There's a much longer history there, and it's it's a more natural relationship, and I think will become even more natural after Brexit.
1: Thanks. So Suda, yeah, there is no, a question I, on the sure. Can okay, I, I would just sure, like sure. to beg, sure.
3: beg to differ <laughs> a little bit here. I mean, I think Matt is is right for the most part in the sense that the UK has a special relationship with the United States. Also, culturally, we're very similar. We're both basket cases at the moment, but but in all uh, seriousness. I think when I was working in Washington, there was also a newfound respect for Germany. After the 2008 financial crisis, members of Congress were really in awe about how Germany uh, bounced back after that. And, you know, there's a lot of admiration for the German vocational system and just Manu- how Germany manufactures things. Now, in the security um, realm, that's not the case. You know, that's where, um, as Matt says, Germany needs to step it up in order to keep that respect and make sure that, you know, Ger- the United States has a strong transatlantic relationship.
1: Okay, but finally, there were two questions on the Western Balkans. So I start with uh, Suda, because you are kind of more hopeful here. So is, is the United States taking a bigger interest in, in the Western Balkans again?
3: So, you know, I'm not an expert on that region. I do think that, again, going back to this, you know, the saying of a Europe whole and free, I think that the Biden administration will look to referee, will look to help, but won't put a lot of sweat equity into problems that are going on in Europe. I think that they're also going to expect Europeans to solve problems on their own, which may be difficult, as Matt says, but, um, you know, I think at the same time they're not going to look to divide Europe, as has been the
1: case these past couple of years. Matt, anything on the Western Balkans?
2: Well, unfortunately, I, you know, I hate to be pessimistic about everything, but this is actually a very good example of where Europe has again dropped the ball. This has been a priority for uh, Merkel's administration, if you want to call it that, for at least 10 years. It hasn't gotten a lot of public attention, but it is something that her former foreign policy advisor, Christoph Heusk, spent a lot of time working on. He's now the German ambassador to the UN. They've made some progress, but You know, there still are huge problems there. And I think everybody here will remember the spectacle of the former German, uh, the former American ambassador to Germany, Rick Grinnell, inviting um, the uh, sort of warring parties, if you will, to the White House recently. And the only reason that that happened was because Europe wasn't really able to push things forward there. And so the Trump administration used this as kind of a, a PR stunt to show that they could go in there and cut some kind of deal, which of course isn't really going to resolve the problems. But I, I do not think that the Western Balkans, where you have a lot of interference, by the way, from the countries we've been talking about here, from Russia, from China, I, I just don't see any consensus on in Europe on, on how really to confront that or to to really make it a priority. And we just haven't seen it up to now.
1: So Matt, here is an opportunity to be optimistic again from Gozia Piaskowska. She asks, how do you see the Biden administration working with the EU on the rule of law and its relations with both Poland and Hungary? So is the Biden administration concerned about the state of the rule of law in these countries and going to do something about it?
2: I think this is actually a an issue where you could see the Biden administration become much more active than, well, I mean the, the Trump administration was arguably active, but maybe not in a, a productive way on these questions, and you know that could be potentially a game changer in this dynamic if the United States shows Kaczynski and peace and and Orbán that they're not going to go along with this and that there are going to be consequences in their bilateral relationship with the United States if they don't uh, kind of reverse course here. That's obviously a, a, a big ask, and I, I don't know how much political capital the Biden administration is going to be willing to spend on these issues. There is also a, a large Polish minority in the, in the United States, of course. So this is an issue you know, that, that is important to Americans in terms of uh, Poland in particular.
1: So I have one last question, and I start with Suda. I think, Suda, you agree with um, Matt on, on Poland and Hungary. If not, you have a chance to react to this. But the question is from Selina and Albrecht. Do you think that Biden stands for more representation of armed forces in the world? So do we see more military intervention again? I mean, Trump was praised for not starting a, a war as kind of a first president in a long time. So what can we expect with Biden Well, you know, I I sometimes think
3: that Europeans think that President Obama started this trend of isolationism and, you know, it was continued with Trump. But I think Americans now want more restraint, right? We're tired of these endless wars. And uh, I'm sure every American president doesn't want to have troops and a large military footprint all over the United States. And where he can draw down troops, I think he will. But I think he also will draw down troops when it makes military sense, when it makes strategic sense, right? He'll listen to the generals unlike what we um, are actually seeing right now, where there is like a mad dash to try and draw down troops from Afghanistan in um, direct confrontation to the officials of the Pentagon. So I think that he will, of course, look to reduce our military footprint. And the Pentagon is also talking about a different kind of strategic theater for the United States right now. So I think that will continue. Continue, but of course, it will continue in a strategic, in a strategic, in a strategic way.
1: Okay, and one last question because we have two minutes. Um, so, um, Matt, I, I give this to you. There was one question about Biden's coalition of democracies and the Franco-German initiative of an alliance of multilateralists. So, the question is, can those two be married? Because not all multilateralists are democracies, and vice versa. So, do you see kind of? Any common ground here for the transatlantic relationship?
2: Sure. I mean, you know, this is not a new idea. This is something that even, you know, we've heard from Boris Johnson talking about a coalition of democracies. You can call it what you want. I think that, you know, both the liberal democracies in Western Europe in particular and the Biden administration will be uh, very keen to kind of fly a common flag here and show that uh, democracy uh, has not died in darkness the question is, you know, where does this lead in the long term? And, you know, if you look at organizations like the or groupings like the G20, you really have to wonder, you know, what, what future that kind of format is, is, is going to have. And if you just include democracies, you know, if it doesn't include all of the larger economies in the world, you know, then you have to wonder about the influence that it's going to have in terms of uh, really being able to pursue concrete agendas and, and pursue something more than just, uh, you know, PR.
1: So, yeah, do, do you want to have a last word on this? Just kind well, of set I mean, I pretty something? much agree with
3: Matt, and I think that um, something that's different about the transatlantic relationship is also that. We're looking um, to common challenges, just not, you know, external common challenges, but also co- common challenges within our democracy, whether it's, you know, income inequality or racial justice. These things that are or, you know, how my pressures with migration, I think these are things that will be important topics for um, this summit of democracies that Biden has planned.
1: Thank you. So that was the end of our Q&A session. Thank you very much, especially to those who have asked questions in the chat and for being so kind of spot on. Um, I added uh, some, uh, uh, some questions of my own, but overall, I think a fantastic variety of questions. So we close this Q&A session now and ask you for your final vote. So now, while everybody's voting, I'll give you the opportunity for your concluding remarks, kind of sum up your main arguments in two minutes, three at the max. Suda, first.
3: Sure. I mean, I think that Europeans understand that Joe Biden is the last opportunity to fix the transatlantic relationship. So I hope that there will be a change of heart on things that um, they used to sort of um, waddle over, like, for example, security spending. I hope that that will, uh, that the Trump uh, presidency was a wake up call for them. And I think now's the time for Europe to be proactive and not sulk in terms of defeatism that, you know, Trumpism is here to stay. I think that um, they need to reach out and kind of establish what they also want to get out of the transatlantic relationship um, and it's also time to look beyond the traditional buckets of trade and security those are important but again as i mentioned before how about uh, digital transformation and climate change there's a lot of things that appeal to like the next generation of transatlanticists that we shouldn't forget about as well and then just getting back to matt's point he talked about how what will biden do he'll do nothing and i actually think biden again he will encourage a strong europe he will encourage sure take it if you want to call it european sovereignty or european strategic Autonomy, whatever it is, just spend more and be a partner toward for us. And I think he'll also, and he and his administration will also play referee when it comes to those endless disagreements that that Europeans have with each other.
1: Thank you, Suda. Also for being right on time. Matt, shoot.
3: Well, I
2: agree with Suda on one point here, which is that many people in the United States were hoping that with the change in administration that the Europeans would see this as a final opportunity to really kind of do something about the transatlantic relationship. Unfortunately, so far, I think the signals that we've seen do not give one much hope. The conventional wisdom in Europe at the moment seems to be that no, things will not return to the status quo ante in terms of the uh, transatlantic relationship, which many people would argue were were never particularly good to begin with. But whatever your view, things will be different now, but... And they won't be easy, but at least it'll be better than Trump. Well, that's setting a a pretty low bar. And I think that if you want to redefine the transatlantic relationship, if you're talking about, you know, coming up with a joint approach towards Russia, coming up with a joint approach towards uh, China, these are going to be very difficult to do if Europe itself doesn't even have a coherent position on these issues. And I'll, I'll close by quoting the strategic analyst, Marcel Diosus, who recently noted that, and this is not a direct quote, but something to the effect of this, which was that America, America at its most divided is still more united than Europe has ever been. And that sad reality is why I think the motion must stand.
1: Fantastic. So uh, now tension rises. Uh, We are nearing the end uh, of the result. Um, So I remind you that kind of initially we had uh, 35% agreeing with the motion, agreeing with Matt basically, and 51% disagreeing with the motion, agreeing with Suda. And so maybe you can show us the final results now. So we have agree still, uh, 35% disagree 56 percent. So disagree so that people think that Joe Biden won't fix the transatlantic relationship. They disagree uh, with the motion. Therefore, I would say this is a bigger I mean, this is this is a slide shift. This is 5 percent from don't know to to disagree. So I think that I would say I would call this a pseudo success. No,
2: Trump would call it a landslide.
1: Yeah, I, I told Matt, you know,
3: uh what is it, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. That's my motto.
1: Yeah, so um 56% previously a 51% disagree uh with the motion that Joe Biden won't fix the transatlantic relationship. They think He will fix the transatlantic relationship. And so, Suda, I call you the the winner of this debate. So congratulations to actually both speakers. I think you did a tremendous job and were we're kind of making your courses very convincingly. So thanks, Suda. Thanks, Matt. Uh, Thanks to ECFR's Rethink team, especially to Marlene Riedel, who has done A lot to make this work. Thanks to our partners uh, at Intelligence Square Germany for partnering again with us and for doing kind of this first ever joint online event. This event was part of the Rethink Europe um, series supported by Stiftung Mercator. And uh, yeah, I wish you all a wonderful evening and thank you very much for being with us. Also, thank you very much to the audience. Uh, I hope you don't regret it. Have a good evening. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Find out more by going to www.intelligencequared.com forward slash partnerships.